Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's gorgeous conversation is with my new friend, Dr. Doug Brackman. Dr. Doug holds two PhDs in psychology, and he is absolutely hands down one of the world's leading psychologists on the planet. He is the author of the book, Driven, and the subtitle for this book is Understanding and Harnessing the Genetic Gifts shared by entrepreneurs, Navy SEALs, pro athletes, and maybe you. I read Dr. Doug's book about a year ago, and it was literally one of my favorite books. I highlight the shit out of it and uh, really got a lot out of it. This conversation is ridiculously interesting. I think you guys are going to get a ton from it. Dr. Doug breaks down the neurological cognitive orientation of our ancestors, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, and then the shift into the agricultural revolution or the agrarian age and how those mind orientations have shifted our modern day world and in this conversation doug teaches us how to be more effective with our own consciousness with our own minds with our own psychological orientation i think you guys are going to get a ton from this conversation uh, i want to thank you guys for leaving us reviews on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to this you just scroll down on your phone it just takes you about 30 seconds i'm going to read a review from let's just find one here this is from liz merch liz merch says aaron thank you for your curious open mind this is the podcast i always jump back into when it's time for me to level up. You nail the delivery every time. Cheers to staying curious. Thank you guys so much once again for leaving reviews. Thank you for subscribing to this so you get the episodes each week. We've got a ton in the can right now and they are pretty much all bangers. I'm so excited to get to share these incredible human beings with you guys here. I'm so excited to be the recipient of their knowledge and to get to share that together. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Like I said, I think you're going to get a ton from it. Let's get to it with the good Dr. Doug Brackman. I started my PhD in 1991, pre-functional MRI, pre-genetic, you know, they didn't have the human genome map yet. They didn't, I mean, we just didn't know shit. And then in the intervening 30 years, 30, 31 years now, it's been just a fucking amazing time to be alive because of just the science of all of this shit intersecting with ancient wisdom. I mean, it's really cool time to be alive. Yeah. What do you think it is about you or your history for you to have that interest in bridging that gap? Because I think it's a special quality. Oftentimes you you meet people that are very strictly science, like the religion yeah. of science. And then sometimes you meet people that are kind of floating stardust where they know a lot about chakras and you know <laughs> meridians and shit, but they're not really, there's no real good translation to, to so I had like, a, normal I had a, people. One of my last professors... Dr. Jean Greaves, really, she said that we are, as a PhD in, in this process, you are truly becoming an expert in something. And true expertise is based in humility. And humility is, a, is the capacity to be honest with oneself. And it's not humiliation. It is literally truth-seeking where you don't know the answer. And the more you study something, the more you realize you don't know. That's expertise. And she said that's good quality to have for yourself because then you're a perpetual student, you're always driven, but driven towards truth. But more importantly, you're willing and able to see it and spot it in others. That is what I have surrounded myself with for the last 20 years of just people that are humble, that we don't know. We're a bunch of, we're a bunch of monkeys. I mean, <laughs> we are animals. We are 
squirrels, cats, dogs, and people running around on this planet, you know, homo sapiens, we are, we're just another animal. And consciousness is what we believe separates us from the animals. But, you know, dolphins and whales and, you know, some of these other higher order animals, mammals have consciousness. I mean, you, you monkeys, you know, chimpanzees know that they're chimpanzees and know that they're not people. And so it, it's, you know, I'm not sure we're really that unique, <laughs> and, but the science of it all and people that are assured of their truth, the truth can be found in science or found in woo or found in your third eye chakra, whatever the, you know, hell their religion is, they miss the big picture that they really don't know. And so it's that, that is the thing that separates me. The personality type, you read driven and you are definitely driven. The personality type of having a hypofrontal lobe, meaning a ADD-based or an ADHD-based frontal lobe, we intuit, we sense the big picture, but don't have all the parts and pieces to figure it all out yet. But we have a sense of the big picture where farmers or people who have the nice ball of energy in their left prefrontal, you know, which is sequential reasoning, and it, it's the executive function in the brain is, is linear sequential reasoning, meaning that, you know, they're wired to build farms and follow a process and a routine that keeps their world safe and predictable. Where hunters, you know, driven, we don't do that. We see the big picture first and then try to figure out what is the best path through it. And so we just have a fundamental you know, constitution of going through the world in a different way. There, that almost killed me because it is a farmer's world, you know, in that third grade experience, fourth grade experience, like well, guys, what the hell are we doing? Memorizing multiplication tables and spelling lists. Like this is pointless guys. We're like, what the hell? Where 95% of the class is, Oh, just do it. And everything's going to be fine. That's the way they created it for them where, you know, that with the reward system that I'm wired for, you know, I'm, I'm wired to feel like there's always something missing, wired to feel like there's always something more. And so, and with that big picture thinking, I'm able to see that, you know, what you guys are doing is not, is, is, is a waste of time. And that feeling, you know, the core thing of what I've been working on lately is really identity work, that farmers have a very nice, simple, clean identity. You know, as we went from these little nomadic tribes of 30, 40, 60 people into these massive million, 10 million, 100 million, you know, nation states and societies, people became butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. Where drivens, you, me, and the people that are interesting in this world, we're wired with this weird, ambiguous sense of self. We really don't have a clear identity because we don't have that nice little part of our brain making sense of this bizarre experience being alive. And so we're left to use often our emotion for identity. And I felt like there was something missing or wrong with me. And that's where toxic perfectionism and imposter syndrome and all of these things that drove me still drive me varying degrees, but drove me into two PhDs because I didn't feel smart enough, drove me into, I didn't feel like I was in very good shape. So I wound up doing triathlon long course, fucking Ironmans and shit for 10 years. And like, you know, trying to prove that I was not less than others, which eventually sent me into Zen sent me into really deep spiritual seeking. And if you, if you follow the meditation paths, 
you know, I started Vipassana and went into Hinduism and Paramahatsu Yogananda for a while. I mean, I did it all. Vedic Christianity is kind of where I landed, but Vedic Christianity mixed with Zen. And it's a where it, it's a humility-based spirituality. We don't know what the we don't know. But you know, you can't understand God, but you can get to know God. There's there's two threads that I'm interested in going down. So I have to like bookend one. The, the one is the concept of humility and self-acceptance and shame and getting into like union psychology and shadow work and things of the sort. I think that's oh, yeah. a really interesting, important topic that I want to, I want to discuss with you. And then the other part, I think just for, it would be valuable to, to unpack exactly what you mean by the concept of a driven personality type. And for someone that hasn't read the book driven. So, so just defining that. And, and I think it's interesting, the Compare so like the hunter gatherer compared to the the farmer mindset is that something that you feel is a, a like an innate nature or is that a a nurture that we're <laughs> we're learning how to be that and then and then and then piggybacking on that I've had uh, are you familiar with Gabor Mate I met him and worked with him he's done therapy on me oh great yeah I love Gabor I've, we've done several pod well maybe several we've done two podcasts together and I I, I greatly so, value and appreciate yeah it. just for more reference more more um kind of background on me by accident I walked into Peter Levine in the park in the mid 90s Peter Levine is um, a, a foundational body worker that brought the science of really trauma healing out he's like the godfather of somatic therapy yeah. And so I, I became a somatic experiencing practitioner, God, 10, 12 years ago, 10 years ago now, and have taken absolutely every one of his courses. And Gabor Mate comes out of that. I mean, so we had some parallel overlaps in the mid, early 2000s. Yeah. So, so, so within that sounds like a lot of the way that you describe in, in your book, getting into the different alleles and all like the genetics yeah. aspects of a person that is more, maybe falls into that capacity to process lots of information at the same time, kind of distracted, but that's a part of their genius ADHD <laughs> so did, type archetype. But yeah. so, so Gabor, he would refer to that and, and, and even, you know, the, the condition or concept of ADHD to be at some point, and this isn't an absolute, like probably most things aren't, but uh, at some point in a person's life through childhood, there was a utilitarian reason to distract themselves because what was in front of them was too painful to, to see. So, so they would see everything else. So that would be more of like the, the nurture aspect of the driven archetype. So that was, yeah, I just want to. Cool. I've, I've never talked about this on a podcast, so this would be a good one. You could have called my book, the trauma-based personality type. Yeah. That's what I kind of was wondering. And that that's a very simple way of understanding this. But it, it if you think about how the world was 15 or 25,000 years ago, it was a trauma-filled, shitty world. Saber two tigers eating your ass, cave bears, people hitting you in the head with big rocks. I mean, it, it, it was a dangerous, you know, our life expectancy was 30, largely because we fell off shit and broke shit and couldn't heal. I mean, so I mean, it, it was a really trauma-based world. And what the agricultural revolution did for 5,000 years ago, it has made the world a ridiculously safe place, ridiculously safe place. And so the, is it nature or is it nurture? And, you know, the field of epigenetics has completely washed that question away. That is the wrong question. It's a wrong way of even thinking about it. You can no longer separate nature from nurture. 
our genes, in particular the proteins in, in our genetic makeup, interact with the environment and turn on and off these different alleles based upon, you know, the environment we're in. And there's tons of evidence and it goes into past lives and, you know, past lives are real. They're in your DNA. This is science. You can, Rachel Yuda out of Israel, you can pinprick babies and predict with 99% reliability if their great, 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 great grandparents were in the Holocaust, just looking at their genome and their blood types and their, their way they're wired to handle stress. And so it, it makes sense, you know, that we're all a bunch of animals and we come into this world, not as a blank slate, but as a potentials. And that's what they talk about in genetics, you know, that, and that's why you have five kids in the same home and shitty, chaotic, dangerous home. Dad's an alcoholic. Mom's not protecting you. People beating up everybody, that chaos and drama. Yes, we will develop a personality type to survive in that world. And my doctoral dissertation, <laughs> this goes into shame and identity, but the doctor, my doctoral dissertation was about self-fulfilling prophecy. And it, it, I get into it in my book, but let me stay on the driven before we tangent too much. So what does it mean to be driven? So basically driven is a rebranding of this trauma-based personality type or shame-based personality type. You know, the shame-based personality type, I wouldn't have sold any books because people don't want to be identified with it because they're shame-filled. But basically what's happened is, is that over the last 4,000, 5,000 years, most of the human species have adapted to this unbelievably safe world we're in. And despite what you feel, the world has never been safer than this. You know, 100, 120 years ago, there was 1 billion people on the planet. 120 years later, which is a fart in the wind as far as you know, time goes, there's now 8 billion of us. We figured out the survival thing you know, our longevity, we live longer than we've lived for. But yes, the human genome does adapt to that safer world. But these underlying genetics and this, this is Thomas Hartman, I'll throw it out to him, who really started to popularize the hunter-farmer theory because he had a you know, severely ADHD kid and was saying that there must be a good social reason or a genetic reason or a survival reason that a certain percent of the population is wired for this impending chaos that's going to come back to the world. And it's ice ages, you know, global warming and all this shit. I mean, up until 12,000 years ago, there were massive changes in our environment. We'd go from, a, we'd have an ice age every 800 to 1200 years. It was really unpredictable and hard for the human species to survive. So this personality type, I call them drivens, that were wired for impending doom, we're wired for chaos, we're wired for a dangerous world. And we hate structure, we hate routine, we hate, we don't do that well. If someone else is, that's my joke, you know, that I always say, if someone else is telling me not only what I have to do, but also how to do it and don't give me an opportunity to improve it or, you know, they just do your work and shut up, I lose my mind. It makes my inner world feel like I'm trapped. And you think about the hunters and the farmers, farmers, you know, if they got bored and wandered away from their crops, they would starve to death and die. If they did, had impulsivity 
and immediately decided that the way they've been growing crops for the last 50 years, oh, there's got to be a better way to do this. Let's tweak it. Let's tweak it. Let's tweak it. If we did that, you know, the chances of losing a whole crop and losing the species would be too great. So there's this mass, most people on this planet are wired for sedentary, predictable routine. And I am not. The identity and the shame piece comes in, like we said at the beginning when we were just kind of talking, that our identities, you know, we're da Vinci's. We're sculptors, we're painters, we're military architects. We are, I mean, that's what Da Vinci was. Da Vinci was all over the map with his identity. He was, he, he was polyamorous. He was not gay, not straight. He, I mean, he was all over the map. And because of our, our base wiring, so we, we differentiate, we are different in a couple different ways. One is our reward system. So I mentioned genetics in my book and these genetics, you know, can they be turned on and off? Yes. Can you change your genetic, your actual genetics? No, but you can change your genetic expression, how these genes are expressed or come out in behavior. Thank God. But we are wired dopamine receptor number two from boredom. And two years ago, I created a, a year and a half ago now, I created a, a, an assessment basically for 10 driven qualities and then had it nationally normed, spent a bunch of money on nationally norming this thing and send it out to a representative sample of 18 to 65 year olds. And it's real, you know, the, this meaning that most people are not like us. And I mean, 90, 95% of people are not wired this way. And so this way wiring means that, you know, I have a propensity for boredom. I'm easily bored, which means in the present moment, I'm wired to feel like I need novelty. I need something new. You know, I'm sitting there watching TV with my wife and my kids. 20 minutes in, if the show's boring, my central nervous system starts to dysregulate and I need to get up and go do something. And huge gift if you're a hunter and you're sitting there around the campfire and it's like, nah, I got to go out and got to go out and forage. I got to go out and get something. So it served us well. But now when you, you know, look at our world, you know, you can basically sit on your ass and never leave the couch, DoorDash and <laughs> Netflix, man, you can, you can survive, which makes Dribbins, makes this small percent of the population nuts. The other dopamine receptor, a more interesting one, and that's most of the clients that I see that miss the ADHD, and it's really an ADD, is dopamine receptor number four. And dopamine receptor number four is the FOMO gene, fear of missing out gene. And so it, it great expose in a National Geographic probably eight years ago about it. They called it the wandering gene. And they found these genetics in people that travel the globe and climb Mount Everest and do all this crazy shit that we do. Those genetics can be traced back over 50,000 years. And there's a Nice little hub of 10,000, 12,000 homo sapiens animals in, in the middle of Africa. This genetic kicks in and we start to feel like the grass is greener over the next hill. And if you think about it, you know, a hunter, you know, there's more woolly mammoths 10 miles that way. There's got to be. I know it. And so we are propelled to chase shiny shit on the horizon. And it, it's, it scattered the herd and it still does. You know, for me, you know, I'm wired to <laughs> wired to feel like there's always something better. And in the future, if I follow this path, it's going to lead to something great. And again, farmers have been 
genetically modifying themselves over the last 4,000 years to not have this. You know, this is good enough where the people I deal with, the people I'm sure listening to this podcast, it's like, but that um, nothing's ever good enough. But those are feelings. And that's the core of really this, this identity and shame piece, these, this deeper identity work that I've been getting a lot of good, good results with, where we build an identity out of those two feelings. Oftentimes, it feels like I'm not enough, and I'll never be enough. And those internal feelings are the most consistent things in my world, way more than my, you know, you look at my resume and what I do, I'm bouncing all over the map. But those feelings have always been with me. So that the underlying kind of feeling that I might be broken, that there's something wrong with me, is really the foundation of my identity until I really got into Zen. Share something that has been an absolute game changer for my sleep and muscular recovery that is magnesium, particularly Mag Breakthrough from BioOptimizers. Magnesium is a mineral that it's just wise to supplement. It's largely deficient in modern day soil, it's largely deficient in most people for that reason. And Mag Breakthrough is a fantastic complex of magnesium, it contains all seven different forms, and it's fantastic. I even chew the, I open the capsules and taste it. I think it tastes great. Might be a little weird but uh, i genuinely appreciate the flavor of the product and think it's important to implement into anyone's life if you care about your sleep if you care about muscular recovery and the best part is you can get yourself a discount by going over to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcasts that's m-a-g-b-r-e-a-k-t-h-r-o-u-g-h.com slash align podcast and you'll get yourself a 10 percent discount on top of any other discounts they may have. So jump over to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast for a discount. If you do not love this product, if it doesn't make a difference in your life, get your money back. No questions asked. I think you're going to dig it. That's it. Magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. Something that I hear occasionally in your description of the hunter compared to the farmer mindset. I just looked up the, the Thomas Hartman hunter, hunter in a farmer's world. Excited to read that book. Thank you for the the reference. But is almost like like a superiority or elitism of the hunter mindset compared to the farmer. And in my mind, and I could be mishearing or projecting, you know what you know whatever whatever kind of language. But my feeling is that both of them they've evolved for a reason, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and and I feel like that like I, I, my mind's going to like ants. You know, and there's, there's some, there's some ants that their job is to go out and explore and, you know, new horizons and see what's going and going on out beyond their, their, their little colony. And then there's other ants that protect the queen and, you know, they all have their roles, but there's not, or, or organs in the body. You could say the heart is the most important tissue. It's like, well, no, the brain's really important. It's like, well, the liver's also pretty important. And if you don't have legs, you're probably not going to be able to go get food. So, you know, so there can, I think that, and ultimately if there is a kernel of superiority and I'm not putting that on you just as a general concept, it's so probably, it, it's probably coming from a place still of like, I, I think like hurt in a way. Of correct. Like, you nailed it. And it, it, it is, we are driven tend to be, can be males driven, can be very narcissistic. And, you know, it's the great AA Alcoholics Anonymous saying that, you know, I'm a piece of shit in the center of the world. <laughs> and it's like, right. I mean, you still feel this, which is narcissism. And narcissism is 
you know, it's my Naveen moonshot is to end global narcissism. But narcissism is I'm using external identities to hide this inner world of shame. Hmm. And where, where, as, where, is, where has that shame been historically for you? And how did you stumble into that shadow aspect of yourself? And what's been your, your journey comprised oh, here of? Here we go. Let's go deep. If that's appropriate to ask. So I dropped out of high school at 17 to go live in a car because I believed that no one had the right to tell me that you know, I couldn't use cocaine. And so the addictive personality is what we are also. I mean, we, we, if I follow my impulsive driven nature, I will die because I'm a sensation seeker. And so those sensations, which is the body, those sensations of feeling impending doom are awful. And it's a part of the dopamine cascade where the dopamine crashes and I'll do anything I can to escape from it. And so it is a real problem and shadow work, big, I've read everything by Carl Jung, which is a bitch to do depending on the translation, but Joseph Campbell does a really good job with it. It, it understanding and Carl Jung was so many years in front of the science and really the really understanding that human beings have an inner world. And Sigmund Freud was, you know, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud really wound up hating each other because of this. Sigmund Freud was a scientist and wanted to keep things in the science. If it's not medical, Carl Jung said, well, you're going to miss the human experience because our inner world of thoughts and feelings are really what's in charge of us. We're really not, you know, our shadow. And you see me put my hand on my chest. Our, you know, our shadow is not a mystery. It's right below our nose. It's our body. And in the last 20 years, 15 years, you know, the hippies are right. Trauma is recorded in the body. And how is it done? You touch a hot stove, every single cell in the nerve pathway from the tip of your fingers to the spine, remember that experience epigenetically. You have nerve memory. When it hits the spine, the original mind, the spine in the body sends an impulse to contract muscles away from that pain. That's also recorded in the body. And so those two traumas in the body on a genetic level, it's here. And as I said with Rachel Yuda, you can trace it back for generation after generation after generation. And it's interesting in mice, it's about four generations of on both sides in the sperm. If your father has trauma, it is carried into your genetics. And it, it makes sense, you know, that the body is going to remember what it takes to survive in the environment. And this was my doctoral work. The thing that connects the body to the brain, this limbic cluster, you know, if, if the body is the hardware system or hardwired for trauma, the limbic cluster is the software system. And, you know, when we walk into the kitchen and you see the pattern of square metal box with four burners, a little bit of this trauma response happens in the body and you start, you, you recoil away from the potential threat, all unconsciously, all pre-consciously. The monkey mind, the thing sitting on top of all of this is then after you have responded unconsciously, then it tries to make sense of why you're doing that. And so it's not largely talked about in the psychology world because the world in general, we love to believe that we're in control of ourselves. But as Carl Jung said against Freud, that's bullshit. We're not really in control of ourselves. 
well, yeah, we are. There's the argument. But on an unconscious body level, the body is making tens of thousands of decisions every day that you're not even aware of. And that was my doctoral dissertation. This is why January this month sucks at the gym because everybody's monkey mind is temporarily overriding the body's resistance to change. And that, that's really the core of my doctoral work was, you know, that we have two operating systems, one, the neocortex that can imagine unbelievable, can, can imagine a me soon to be 54 year olds with a six pack again. I can think about that. Oh God, it's going to be great. I'm going to do the, but I have this operating system down below my nose that doesn't have better as a goal, has the familiar as a goal. And so as things become unfamiliar, we resist physically continuing them because change is scary. I wonder the, and by below your nose, you mean the entirety like of the body, visceral system, like brain stem? All of it. And it is, you know, the, the East meets the West. And, you know, I've been 30 years doing this stuff and I've, I've seen mindfulness come. We're on a third wave now, but it, it's, Back when I first started, there was a big mindfulness wave kind of going through the culture and going through society. And then within a year or two or three, people really get into it. They find out that's hard <laughs> and they yeah. stay all of a sudden it fades to the background. But oh, my God, it comes back because what's between your ears and inside your head is called the brain. What the top of your head to the top of your toes and every single cell in your body is the mind, including the brain. I would include the environment in the mind as well. Obviously, it's semantics. That, yeah, and that, you know. And the culture that you exist within and ultimately you could keep on, you know, all, it's such a subjective word, but I think it's impossible to parse out our relationship to our like skin bag body in relation <laughs> exactly. to like environmental. But this conditions. is why Zen, and this is, this will get me onto another podcast with you, I'm sure, because we can go long form on this one. But that's why I like Zen, because Zen, you know, simple question, is your body and breath, one thing or two? Well, again, subjective, but I'd say one right. thing. It, it, well, but from my subjective experience, if you're not I, would, breathing, I would say one thing. Is it, if you're not breathing at all, your body still exists. Yeah, so I would go but back. But it doesn't maintain so would, itself without the breath. And so it, it, we start to tap into this non-dual. Yeah. You know, the answer is yes. It's like the, the Alan Watts has a bit that I'm sure you've heard in relation to, to, to bees and, and flowers. Mm-hmm. You know, so the bee is just a continuation. It's an, it's an organ of the flower. So it's, it, the flower doesn't exist without the pollination of the bee. So the bee could be like a sexual organ of the flower. It's Correct. the same thing, same thing with like, <laughs> like orangutans in, in a rainforest. They're, is, they're literally a continue. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a mobile ambulating sexual organ that's busting a nut and dropping it someplace else to perpetuate the tree. It's pretty fucking Correct. cool when you think about it. It's amazing. Yeah. And fruit, yeah, fruit is, is, you know, we eat fruit and poop out the seeds and that, you know, so the symbiotic or, you know, relational thing is what Zen is all about. Zen is, Zen is, let's look at, you know, directly into it really quick is that, you know, Zen, Zen is very simple. It is subject and object, and it's all about the relationship. And I have gone down every spiritual path through that I can imagine. And I've concluded is that, you know, God is not a, God is not a thing. God is a relationship. 
God is a state of being in relationship. And, you know, the Trinity is a great example of that and not talked about. You know, it's God, you know, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How many gods are there? There's only one God. And, you know, Einstein. Einstein is, you know, the universe. We are not separate from the universe. There is one verse. And, you know, our distinct feeling of being separate from is what allows us to actually experience the connection. And so you can't have the connection without the disconnection. So you can't have one without two. Yep. All of that is nice for your neocortex to make sense of. But what happens is, is when the human body, one of my favorite names for God used throughout Hebrews is presence, capital P. And God doesn't operate in time. And so when you let go of time, and literally the Sanskrit or the Greek word that Christ used for eternity is timelessness. It's not never-ending time. It's an absence of time. But what happens to the human body when we get into the present and start to experience being, not feeling, being safe, our body will start to dysregulate. Because we're uncomfortable with that sensation. It feels unsafe to, to be safe deeper than that is our trauma starts to come out of our genetics, which is, which is the body is trying to rewire itself for the present moment of safety, which is incredibly unfamiliar to the, to the mind, to this whole thing we're living in in this meat suit. And it, it's when the guys come back from Afghanistan is when they flip out. They don't flip out when they're in Afghanistan because they're in this environment that is familiar to how they need to operate. But when they come home and experience safety is when post-traumatic stress or the body starts to try to dump these multi-generation trauma loops that we're in. And, you know, it's why you date the same person over and over and over, (laughs) why you, you know, have the same amount in your checking account over and over and over, because if it starts to go up too much, the body it's part of my doctoral work. It's why lottery winners blow up their lives within two, three to five years because they can't handle safety. And so the trauma-based personality type and the Peter Levine stuff and the Gabor Mate stuff and all of those you know, practices, somatic practices are about really getting out of the way of the body so the body can do what it's best at. Another one of my great trainers, Steve Hodgkinson, you know, it's, it's, he says, you know, it's a the body is a hundred million year, unbelievably brilliant healing machine. It's my joke. You know, I've got this hundred million year old healing machine that I'm living in with 53 years between my ears fucking it up. And so allowing my body to actually be in the present and your work with, you know, just embodiment is a trauma healing process. And that trauma healing is literally changing our genetics or changing our DNA to adapt to the present moment rather than actually trying to fit, you know, the outer world into our inner world. And I flip that around to where the outer world is actually safe. And that's reality. My inner world of thoughts and feelings and resistance and, you know, is not running the show as often as it used to for me. 
still running the show, but it's not as often. And I, I seem to well, have more. I lean on Ramdas a lot. Oh yeah, for, for these for these things, and that's one of the things that I've borrowed from him and said on here way too many times, probably. So I'll keep it short. But you know, your neuroses they don't like die, or you don't like cut them out or anything. They just become manageable, you know. So as opposed yeah. to being these big monsters that are running the show. They are, are like, he calls them like your little kids Then you can have them around the table and you guys can have tea together and you can play and like, oh, they can like pat them on the head. Like you're there. And I think that that's when sometimes people, and this is where I think the, the whole like self-help inner work kind of, you know, self-development space can get a little funny when uh, occasionally I hear words like dropping a thing. Well, maybe dropping baggage is okay, but like cutting something out, releasing, dropping, as opposed to coming into relationship with acceptance yeah. union. Yeah. It's you know? the relationship with great way to talk about it. Yeah. And it, it's cause it, you know, the example I was using before and I use it a lot is this hot stove metaphor that we react to the stove, whether it's hot or not, we recoil against it. We brace against it. It can be in its unconscious. You don't have a choice in that. It is a, it's a reflexive system. And as a human animal, you know, we're always turning sticks into snakes and our body will tell us it's a snake. And if you can't pause and actually meet that with curiosity and see the relationship you're having with this object and how you know, I say it all the time, feelings are bullshit. They're neuropeptide reactions you're having in your body, but they're the most important things in the world because they literally change your perception of reality. And if I'm really scared and feeling really, you know, really scared and feeling, you know, not abundant, and I look in my checking account, that number will mean something very specific to confirm my emotion. So we're living in that biased loop. Isn't that, isn't that a bit of an absolute to say that feelings are bullshit when I feel like there'd be nuance in that because sometimes a person may get a, a gut feeling, you know, like people would say. Oh, that's and, great. Man. And that's and, and that's an indication I'll go with you on that. that you oh, were like yeah. about to get about to get robbed. Suddenly, like I'm oh, having oh, a yeah. feeling the snake, this snake is a snake. This is not a stick. <laughs> this is let me let me let me do it. <laughs> Intuition is not a feeling. This is what Carl Jung blew up on Freud about, and Freud blew up on Carl Jung about. He said, Carl Jung said, there's two internal feeling functions or two internal functions. We have thinking, we have feeling. And intuition is an external function. We have the world of objects and things, things we can see and use our senses for. But then you have this other thing called intuition. Intuition is an external function. I walk into a room, I'm walking down an alley, and my hair on the back of my neck goes up. That's not a feeling. That's a sensation. But it could be as misdirected and like noise-based as any feeling. It triggers, just like everything else, when you have a ping to your radar, the neuropeptides then react, and I might call that fear. But intuition is much more like weather. I can walk outside and it feels like rain. But how I feel about rain, if we're in a long-time drought, oh, it's awesome. If I'm going on a picnic, oh, it sucks. But my sense about the rain is still the rain. It's not the feeling about the sense. And I've done tons of work. And this is <laughs> the intuition, honing your intuition outside of your emotion is, is 
unbelievably powerful. And that's, that's once you get your central nervous system stabilized and really get into discernment between your inner world and outer world, you'll start to be able to hone your intuition and see that it's not a feeling. It's just a sense. It's a sixth sense, you know, and that you walk into a room and this one person, the room is really warm and they don't like it. Another person, the room is really cold and they don't like it, but the room is the room. And so it, it, it's that ability to take that pause and meet the sensations in the body. And I'll say it this way too. There are no feelings in the present moment. There's no fear in the present moment. There can't be. There's a lot of sensations in the present moment, which are then past the caudit into the brain. And then if they're strong enough, they get into the, you know, the higher order of consciousness. And then we get narratives and labels and predictive. So there's this defining difference between what's happening in the body and our interpretation of it. Right. But so it's usually, it's a seventh of a second. It's usually so fast for most people, they can't discern the emotion from the radar pain. So you're calling intuition the objective environmental stimuli and then feeling would be once that stimuli passes through your, your own internal filtration system, then it alchemizes or changes or whatever personality right. into. Yeah, Carl Jung, who, Carl Jung, who defined intuition, he came up with the word. That's his definition of it. It's an external function. Yeah. Myers-Briggs is based on it. You know, we have introvert, extrovert, then you have intuition versus sensate. Are you an intuitive or are you a sensate person? And then you have thinking and feeling, and then you have, you know, the way you organize the world, which is your either your perseverator, endless possibilities, or you like things in boxes, which is your judging function. So something that I'm, I'm interested in, in relation to this conversation is if you do, I've done a Vipassana, I've done just one. And in that, you know, you have this tubby Indian guy called Gwenka. It's super sweet and amazing. He's like everybody's dad. And from his lens or the Vipassana lens, it would, the path towards freedom or liberation or, you know, Samadhi or whatever would just be just being with yourself. Like don't do anything. Don't meditate. Well, meditate, but don't do any kind of special meditation practices, no dristi, no mantra, just literally just be, allow these, these, uh, some scars to come up. Some scars are like past traumas, holdings, contractions, and just be with it. That's, that's all you yeah. need to do yeah, is to not yeah. do Goinka and yeah, it's the art of living in Goinka. But, but, but then I want to juxtapose that with the, you know, then you could go into maybe a, see a talk therapist and go more like maybe they come from like a psychoanalytical background or whatever, the, whatever their thing is. And then it's like, okay, now we're making reasoning of the stories that we're telling ourselves, which also I think is true in relation to like the war vet that they may have a higher instance of PTSD if the story that they have about the war that they were in suddenly shifts. So they were in this scenario. They thought they were a freedom fighter. They found out two months later that they were a terrorist and they're like, oh my God, you know, and then suddenly everything shifts. So there's a story element and Holy then, Jesus. and then hold on. And then the last parts, I want to have like these three pillars. I think ultimately they're, they're all relevant would be the, the somatic components. And then you get into Bessel van der Kalk and Peter Levine and, you know, those, those type channels. And it's like, oh, actually this is stored in your, your body. And I think ultimately they're all true, but what are your, your thoughts on that kind of like trilogy of getting into your shit? And you can the just say, narrative, that sounds most 99% of narratives in your head are designed to keep you out of your body and keep your trauma 
from coming out of your body. And so my blast against psychotherapy and talk therapy in particular, ego therapy, for, for lack of a better word, the ego is this narrative self or this, this sense of um, what's familiar to me, what I like, what I dislike with, and I mean, most people have no clue what embodiment actually means. And they're, they're living in this narrative in their head, not realizing that they always park in this one particular place because they, it's familiar to them. They don't even know they're making those choices, but they have a wonderful narrative as to why, (laughs) you know, it's February 14th, 80% of people don't even remember their new year's resolutions because they've come up with a, an acceptable narrative in their head, justifying how their body is resisting change. And that is, you know, the real new kind of way of understanding human beings. And Peter Levine, Bessel van der Kolk, and, you know, the Gabor Mate, all of them. It's not very popular because it, it really sucks to get into your trauma and do your shadow work. It's hard. It's, it, it is horrible when you are in the depths of your shame. And it's a lot nicer, you know, and if you're a farmer and you got a nice little job and you're worried about your, you know, your wife or whatever, and you go into talk therapy and you come up with a nice new narrative and you and your wife come up with a nice new narrative that keeps your trauma in check. And everybody agrees that I'm not going to make that face at you anymore because that triggers your hot stove reaction. And therefore that, you know, I don't want to do that and I'll learn not to do that. And therefore but you're never dealing with actually the body's real reactions. You're just coming up with a new, new narrative where if you're driven, I don't believe you have a choice. I think you have to really go deeper, go into your shadow work or into your body work and become, as Ram Das says, you have to become friends. <laughs> you have to become friends with this thing that is potentially going to destroy your life. And it, it's, you know, I, I, it is a farmer's world. Something you said earlier about, you know, this entitlement of being driven and thinking I'm special. It's their world, man. And, and the world is safe. It is. It is ridiculously safe compared to what it used to be. The chances of you or I dying in a war or getting eaten by a, eaten by a lion is, is zero. I mean, this is not going to happen. But, you know, that ability for me to still feel like I'm not enough has forced me into questioning, you know, well, who am I then? Am I my feelings? Am I my thoughts? Am I my intuitions? Am I the way I do it in my book is, is as a driven person, quickest path to hell for us is trying to figure out who we are. It is because there is no who. (laughs) What do you mean? So I answer that very simply with the what. It's what I am. What I am is an animal. And how do I fully embrace my animalness? How do I fully experience myself in my body as just being an animal? When I go down that path and I learn how to become present, my trauma will start to come up. And when my trauma starts to come up and then my body starts to dysregulate, if I can maintain a sense of curiosity and wonderment and maintain this this knowledge, wisdom, that I am actually safe. Yeah, but my body's freaking out. I don't feel safe. I feel awful. I feel terrible. I feel bad. I feel all of these terrible things, but I can use my eyeballs to actually reality check my central nervous system, which is called meditation. My body, 100 million years of organic healing intelligence, it knows how to heal itself. 
Meaning that when my wife makes those eyebrows and it reminds me of how my second grade teacher was a bitch and judged me, I'm not reacting to her as if she's my second grade teacher who, you know, I'm able to actually feel that initial flash of pain, shame, whatever you want to call it, meet it with curiosity. And as Carl Jung says, it will morph itself into something different. And, you know, the lead, that's the alchemy model, the lead, this heaviness, this pain, this hurt, this all this in my body is actually gold. It's really not lead. And so I can see how my wife isn't really, isn't my second grade teacher. She's not a bitch. She's actually a really nice, warm person, but my body was lying to me in a flash of a moment. And then it morphs into gratitude. It morphs into presence. It morphs into appreciation, all of these abundance, all these great other names for the way I can be rather than full of fear and pain and hurt. Or I can be more like the definition of God. I wanted to share something that I have been loving for the last, it's been a very long time. Since I moved to Hawaii when I was 18 years old, I discovered this stuff called kava. They have kava bars all over there. They're very popular in the South Pacific Islands, and it is amazing stuff. It's incredible for downregulation of your nervous system, calming yourself down, reduction of anxiety, insomnia relief. I'm just going to read a list of some of the things it's really good for. Deeper and more restorative sleep, boosting mood and sociability, enhancing mental focus and creativity. It has anti-inflammatory effects, ton of stuff. When you are drinking kava, it's an incredible way to connect with those around you. It's a great replacement for alcohol, I would say a million percent. And I really love the stuff. I particularly value the kava from True Kava. And we also have a 15% discount for listeners out there. So all you got to do to get the 15% discount and try kava for yourself is go to gettruekava.com slash discount slash align 15. So that's spelled get true kava, G-E-T-T-R-U-K-A-V-A.com slash discount slash align 15. I think this stuff is just fantastic. It doesn't have any kind of hangover effects. And it is one of my favorite tools for hanging out with friends, for people I care about, sharing some kava and uh, just going deeper in conversations, feeling fun, feeling amicable, feeling euphoric. And I think you guys are going to dig it. So jump over to gettruekava.com slash discount slash Align15. You could also just use the Align15 code at checkout for 15% off. I like the framing tool of the letting go of who I am and observing what I am, because it, it feels to me when you say that the who I am feels like this all encompassing, like the roots are like really wrapped and integrated <laughs> in, whereas the what I am suddenly creates some, some, a little bit of distance to allow maybe more acceptance of even like the gnarlier, you know, what it's just like, oh, like if your dog has diarrhea or does something shameful with some other dog or something like that, you're like, oh, it's a, it's a dog. It's, you know, it's going through its thing. It's some past conditioned, whatever. And like, here it is. And here it is. You know, you can come into full acceptance with that. Whereas I, th I think that and I, I feel like there's something that happens there with the, the question of who compared to, to what. And then the next stop, and this is my website and everything else is I am driven, which is what I am is a homo sapien, an animal, another one of God's creatures running around on this planet, you know, cats, dogs, squirrels, we're just another one of animals, but I'm also driven. And so I have a different reward system. I have a different brain structure. 
I understand why most people are, they love a W-2 job. They love it. It's predictable. It's safe. They have, you know, predictable paychecks every two weeks. They, those kind of things make me crazy because I'm driven, not because I'm bad, not because I'm different, not because I, I am different, not because I'm bad, not because I have ADD or some label that some psychologist wants to give me that explains why I need this medication to fit into the farmer's world. And so it is, it's unbelievably relieving, you know, it's just what I am, but I'm not my trauma. I'm not my reaction. So those things are changeable. What are, what are exercises or if you were working with a, a, a client or a patient, however you refer to people that you work with, what would be exercises to start to explore their, their shadow side to use like union language? So meditation. And if you're driven, when I do a driven meditation, it's based on Zazen. It's based on a, a sect of Zen called Rinzai Ji. And it, it's eyes open and it's very simple. You know, there's a it's style of breathing. There's a lot of breathing that happens with it. But breathing, breathing is a very trippy thing. It can be both controlled by the neocortex or your monkey mind, but also is in your parasympathetic automatic nervous system, automatic nervous system to where... I don't have to think about my breathing. And so on my in-breath, I'm in control of my breathing and I breathe in. On the out-breath, I'm letting go of control and allowing gravity to take the breath. And if I'm using my eyeballs to reality check what's happening in my central nervous system, meaning that my inner world tells me that I'm anxious and I'm scared, but I use my eyeballs to look around and see my immediate surroundings. There's no saber-toothed tiger here. There's no cave bear here. There's nobody with a big stick going to hit me. Like, I am safe, period. Yeah, but my body, isn't that curious or isn't that interesting how my body doesn't match actually match my reality? When you do that, combined with that style of breathing with your eyeballs open and looking around, you know, for two minutes, I start everybody at two minutes, um, you'll experience a... a very quick, you know, the parasympathetic, when it starts to kick in, we start to relax very quickly. And presence or the present moment, we start to experience this thing called grace. We start to experience safety and peace <laughs> for no apparent reason, for no earned reason. We didn't do anything for it. You know, it's gravity. The more awareness of gravity we have, and we use our eyeballs and surrender, let go into the present, we feel better very quickly. And I mean, two breaths, three breaths in, you will see how your body and your brain start to collude against you with these negative thoughts to make you feel tension again, because your body doesn't want to actually let this trauma up or your body is actually trying to let the trauma up, but it doesn't feel good. And if my body can convince my monkey mind that I'm actually not safe because I didn't pay my taxes and oh my God, I didn't call that person back. Um, it's just this loop that we're in of the narrative as to why I'm anxious rather than actually reality, that there's no reason for me to be anxious right now. And that's, you know, my have an understanding of my spiritual practice is that, you know, the present moment the present moment is filled with grace. The present moment is safe. The present moment is abundant. The present moment is grateful. The present moment is all these different names for this state of being that you can be when you're in the present. But the body is going to say, 
uh, yeah, but you can't tolerate that for more than 30 seconds because it's going to start to try to let go of the trauma that's going to come up into the neocortex in your monkey mind and turn into thoughts very quickly as to why I'm still a piece of shit and I'm not good enough and don't have enough money. I'm going to die broke in the gutter. That's where it all leads to. But it is that ability to see this logically and go, whoa, there's that shit Doug's talking about. This is the exercise. There's that stuff Doug's talking about. And there's no reason why my body is dysregulating right now other than past trauma. And when your trauma becomes from the past rather than in the present, it's Bessel van der Kolk. Great. Trauma has nothing to do with the past. It has everything to do with your current reactions in the present moment. And there's no reason for me to actually be tense and going into this shame curl right now because I'm safe and there's no one around me and there's no one shaming me. Ah, therefore it must be old. You sit with that for 30 seconds, 30 minutes, 30 years, it will actually start to rewire itself and become less. And those deep shadow pains and physical sensations morph into gratitude, morph into these other feelings that are other thing Carl Jung said, everything is a dichotomy. Everything is split into yin-yang. But is it masculine or feminine? Yin-yang has nothing to do with masculine and feminine. What it has to do with is with the relationship between masculine and feminine. You know, that symbol is, you know, yin-yang interrelating and interacting with each other. When I can feel that relationship between the dark and the light, that's where I can get the healing. But it's the relationship, not the dichotomy. And so it's, it's two minutes, you turn on a timer, and literally you're, you know, I start people with breathing normally. So you're going to take a big breath in through your nose, hold it, never push your breath. You're slowly relaxing the muscles and gravity will take the breath. That triggers a brainstem response through the vagal nerve and sends signals of safety into the brainstem, which very quickly triggers the body to start releasing trauma. And as long as you can, and I do start everybody at two minutes because it's real medicine. This is real medicine. This is not, you know, this is real neurobiology. And if you do too much, less is more. If you do too much, you'll, you're back to lottery winners and, and, you know, I'm going to get a sick pack. No, don't, don't start that way. You, you, the way you make change is you make a very small change and keep it make another small change and keep it, make another small change and keep it. Like di digest it. Digest it. That's what Zen, you eat, you eat the shadow. <laughs> you become one with it and it morphs into something bigger. Hmm. What a, a great connection, man. I'm glad we got to make time to be able to, to connect. Kindred, kindred spirits from afar. I wanted to, well, I mean, there's a bunch of other questions and ideas. I wanted to talk about the, the concept of, Maybe we can like put, make this for another time. But one of the, one of the things that came up that I thought was interesting as you were talking was, I feel like humans likely create the concept of of God because it's easier to, I don't know, place or project or the the idea or feeling of unconditional love outside of humanness. You know, so we put we put this 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 beacon of unconditional love somewhere because we need it. Because I think most of what we do is, you know, just a bunch of ploys to, to be loved, you know, because you ultimately, perhaps if you are doing these compensatory patterns, you know, ultimately why we're 
a lot of times working out and making lots of money and being really influential and, you know, having donating to charities and doing all these things, oftentimes, not a hundred percent of the time, but oftentimes is this kind of like cry to be seen or cry to be loved. And I, I've had many moments. Let me, with let, me, let me make it really simple for you. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> the social need to be accepted into the tribe is not love. Okay. It's the most, a fear of abandonment is the most powerful human emotion there is. And I'll go biblical with you on this perfect love cast out all fear. And if you, you know, I got two daughters, I have a 13 year old and 15 year old daughter. Believe me, social acceptance is not love. <laughs> you can't have a popsicle an hour before dinner. You can't talk to this boy on the phone past eight o'clock at night. Those are not my feelings. That is, that is an intention of doing what's best for her. She don't like it. She don't feel good. I'm, gonna, I'm threatening to kick her out of the herd because of love. And so love and social acceptance are not the same thing. And so it, that's a really phenomenal conversation and we can have it. But, you know, the only thing that's, that's in the present moment is love. Yeah, but it's full of pain. Correct. Pain is love. Yeah. And, you know, you lose someone. Uh, my wife and kids, I pull in the driveway. They're dead. The house is on fire, yellow tape, firemen. They're holding me back. I'm flipping out, crying. My vagal, my dorsal vagal system kicks in. I throw up. I mean, I am in so much agonizing pain because they're gone. Why? Because I love them. My physical reactions in my body are there telling me that they matter. And if I get scared of losing them, that's a different thing. I'm scared of that pain. And that's my joke that I always say is that, you know, if I let that fear of that loss get a hold of me, all of a sudden I'm digging a hole in my backyard, putting a school bus in it, hiding my wife and kids in there, and they're never leaving. But that's a completely different thing than actually what love really is. Love is an interesting concept. It's like, yeah, and like it, it we, is the, it's we not say that we say, we say that word, you know, but then it's like the whole Eskimo <laughs> snowflake thing. There's like 20, 29 different types of ways of saying snow. Love is well, so it, it, weird. I don't know. It's just, I don't think we know what the hell love is in Western culture in large part. So this is fantastic. God is love, right? Hear that every day. Everybody always says that. You cannot understand God, nor can you understand love, but you know it when you experience it. And so it is this, it's ununderstandable. It's designed that way. It's supposed to be that way, mm. but it's not fear. And I do a whole, you know, based on Heideggerian and Husserl, video on you know how the interaction between being and time our being nature of truly being in the present and how time when that intersects time is where fear is no time no fear and so it gets really deep really quick and we will have to do that on another podcast it's interesting i love it i mean that that's it's a total mind fuck though i mean it, it's an absolute you know it makes you get all zen in the head because you're trying to under understand something that literally cannot be understood. It's not designed to be understood. It's yeah. designed to be experienced. Yeah. I say the same thing about women. So you can't, you can't understand women, man. You can only experience them. Yep, I get that. All right. Well, let's wrap this piece up. Thank you for uh, making time to do this. I really enjoyed oh, this conversation. What, um, um, I, like I said in the beginning, I, I really enjoyed the book driven. That was the original 
catalyst. Yeah, you can get, you can get, I think three chapters free off my webpage, off my website. I am driven.com. All things, Dr. Doug. Great. And then are you on social media? Are you on like Instagram, this places? Not really. All right, great. Cool. So then just get the book. Look, I don't, yeah, I'm doing some of that now, but it, again, it, it's not something that, that can be really understood easily. You have to experience it. Yeah, no, I get that. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you very much. Thank you all for tuning in. That's it. That's all over now. Guys, enjoyed that conversation. If you did, por favor, you can share it on the Instagram or whatever social media of your choice. You can tag myself over at Line Podcast. And I love seeing those guys. I love resharing them. And it's just quite meaningful to see the parts of these episodes that you guys really enjoy. And it's great feedback for me. Thank you for the reviews on whatever platform you're listening to this. It just takes a few seconds for you to scroll down on your phone, subscribe, uh, maybe give it a share if you found it supportive. And I uh, love reading the reviews. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope you guys have a tremendous week and I will see you very soon.